Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. I'm Motorcycle Mark. I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. By the grace of God, the miracle of this program, I've not found it necessary to drink, use, nor pull the trigger since May 13th, 1985. My sponsor's Big Jim. He don't mind if I use his last name. Big Jim told me anytime you speak at a roundup or a rendezvous or a reunion, you will wear a jacket and a tie. Well, I showed up with a jacket and a, and a tie. <laughs> if anybody bumps into Big Jim Murray, you can tell him I wore a jacket and a tie. Till now. <laughs> All the paperwork on me says I'm from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and in a lot of ways I am. But after a 40-year absence, I recently moved back to my hometown, Jefferson, South Dakota. Two days after they found out I bought a house down there, they hired another cop. (laughs) My home group is, has been, and always will be Thursday afternoon Westside Outlaws in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I helped start that meeting damn near 30 years ago, and I'm proud to say that. And I'm the only surviving charter member of the Westside Outlaw Group. There was six or seven of us that started that group, and they're all dead now except me. It's okay to clap about that. That's a good thing. (laughs) When I speak, I expect to to hear some clapping once in a while. I expect to hear some laughing once in a while. And I expect to hear some crying once in a while. Now, you all can do the clapping and the laughing, and I'll probably be the one doing the crying. I recently moved 75 miles away from Sioux Falls, so I don't hit my home group much anymore. But I do sneak up there and try to get my doctor appointments and family visits and stuff on Thursdays, and I'll bust into that outlaw meeting about two minutes before 5 o'clock. And it doesn't matter who's sitting in the chairman's chair. When I come in that building, that person gets up and moves. They know whose meeting that is. I give you my sobriety date, May 13th, 1985, with great humility. I don't mean to be prideful or boastful about that. It's just a number. That's all it is. And I tell you that number, not to be boastful about having a bunch of years, but to let you know that this program can work, and it does work, if you are willing to work this program. You can clap for that, too. What's the deal with these guys, Kenny? Don't they get it? A little slow out here in Wyoming? How'd you like that one, Mal? I got a short list of notes in my pocket, and I promise I won't go back to it once I've read them. Thank you, thank you, thank you to the Stampede Committee for inviting me to come out here. It is my pleasure and my honor to do this. This is my best service work that I can do, is sharing my experience, strengths, and hope with y'all. 
Well, I wasn't expecting no clapping for that, but thanks. I'm going to run off a few names, and I'm sure I'm going to miss a few people, so please don't be butthurt if I happen to miss your name. Mel, you're the chair. You've done a good job with this event. I'm proud of you. Dave, Robert, Kelly, had a lot of fun with y'all since I got here. Elizabeth, Terry, Vicky, it was nice to meet y'all. And uh, I think we ought to give a round of applause to this committee. These events take a tremendous amount of work, I know, because I've been watching it for 30 years. I'd also like to thank Kenny, our guy over here in the corner. Let's give this man a big round of applause, too. There were a few speakers that have gone before me already. Those of you who missed her last night, I feel bad for you. A.A. Rosie. Rosie said that she worked awful hard to be anybody but Rosie when she was drinking. She was always trying to be somebody else, the salsa queen of South L.A. I could relate to that, Rosie. I got busy trying to be anybody but me, too. We had an Elanon family group speaker, Deb. I don't know if no Deb's in here tonight. That Deb. Hi, Deb. Deb spoke of fear and faith. And I don't claim to have any original material in Alcoholics Anonymous except this. And I, I am going to claim this, and I'm going to call it mine. I have defined fear as negative projection of the future. And the counterpart of fear is faith. And the counterpart of negative is positive. Ergo, my definition of faith is positive projection of the future. We had a young lady in here this afternoon named Amanda, very young, had a sober family. It was nice to see a local or area speaker with a relatively, uh, you know, not a lot of miles on her belly button, but a good program of recovery already with a sober family. And I can tell you something about youth. I was a school teacher for a number of years. My hair was about two times longer than it is now. My beard didn't have all this silver in it, but it was there. And I used to tell my students, first day of school, my anger is a luxury you can't afford. And I would tell them that old age and treachery will always prevail over youth and exuberance. <laughs> so it was good to have a young speaker in here today. I'm really glad for her. Amanda, thank you. And then just this evening, right before me, was Jill. I met Jill earlier this evening, and I asked her if she was a tough act to follow, and she assured me that she wasn't. I'm afraid Jill might have lied to me. I did not say anything about Elanaz ever. <laughs> but I, I have heard it right here tonight that Elanaz may be crazy. And if that is true, it's all us alcoholics' fault. If it weren't for us, there wouldn't be no Elanaz. Those are the speakers that have gone before us, or before me this evening, and I'd like you to give them all a big round of applause. We've got two more speakers tomorrow. We've got Kelly all the way here from, uh, what's that city up there? It's the capital city of Montana. You'd think I'd know that, too. That's what I said, Helena, Montana. If Kelly was two inches taller, she'd be a dwarf. <laughs> 
I've had a lot of fun visiting with Kelly since I got here, and I'm very anxious to hear her speak tomorrow. And I'm really, really bummed out to know that Father Jim is so sick he won't be able to take this podium in the morning. I've heard Father Jim speak before, and that guy is a riot. He is really good. But I understand we've got a special guest speaker coming in to take his place, and I'm not going to give that guy up. But he asked me if he could borrow my tie. <laughs> anyway, enough of the notes. I'm supposed to tell you my experience, my strengths, and my hope what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. I don't like to tell many people this, but I'll tell you all. I was born in Sioux City, Iowa. Now, that's not my fault. <laughs> Sioux City is about nine miles from my hometown of Jefferson, and that's where me and all eight of my siblings were born. It's none of our fault. That's just the way it was. But I spent the first 18 years of my life in my hometown of Jefferson, South Dakota. As long as I can remember, I always felt like a square peg in a world full of round holes. I just didn't fit. I was never big enough. I was never smart enough. I was never handsome enough. I was never tough enough. I was never good enough. I was never enough. And I felt really, really, you know, icky about that. And then when I was 14 years old, I discovered alcohol. I had a jockey from the horse track down there score me a half a pint of peppermint schnapps. I drank that stuff like it was Kool-Aid, and instantly I was six foot tall, and 180 pounds, and bulletproof, and invincible. And then there was the horrible hangover. But the hangover didn't bother me as much as the exuberance of being able to rid myself of the burden of being me. So I liked drinking, and I kept right after it all the way through high school. And it caused me a lot of problems. But I still graduated on time with decent grades, and I moved off to Minneapolis to study at a technical school there, and I continued right on drinking and raising cane in Minneapolis, and somehow managed to get a diploma from that school and not end up in uh, stainless bracelets while I was up there, which was pretty cool, and when I graduated, I moved to Sioux Falls, and Sioux Falls was home to me for 38 years, and when I got to Sioux Falls, I started drinking with drunks in that town. It was just a natural thing for me. Water kind of seeks its level, and an alcoholic seems to find other alcoholics to drink with. Unless they're like that young lady that was up here this afternoon and said she liked drinking in her closet. <laughs> I have to tell you some things about uh, substances other than alcohol, too, because it is a part of my story. I didn't indulge in any of those substances until just a couple of weeks before I graduated from that school of Minneapolis. And when I got to Sioux Falls, I got a little bit busier with that. And then in 1980, gasoline went over a dollar a gallon. And I said, screw this. I'm not driving a car anymore. I'm going to get me a motorcycle. Well, by the way, I am going to say things tonight that some people are going to find offensive. And if you can't, if you can't handle it, I suggest you take it up with your sponsor. <laughs> the choice is yours. You can get over it or die mad. I learned a long time ago that if you want to make an omelet, better not be too afraid of breaking some eggs. Anyway, I try to keep it. Uh, I try to keep it alcohol related. I try to keep it clean from the podium. If my mother was sitting in here tonight, I'd be proud to have her sit here and listen to everything I'm going to tell y'all. So, in 1980, I started riding motorbikes, and I uh, I ended up getting hooked up with some bikers, and that was back in the days when 
Sex was safe and motorcycles were dangerous. <laughs> and now every dentist has got a Harley Davidson. Well, I think you know the rest of that story. <laughs> anyway, I started running with these bikers in 1980, and I really picked up my drinking a lot. And uh, it, it's, oh gosh, I want to say late in August of 1982, we went on a, a state's toy run in Redfield, South Dakota. And there was uh, bikers from all over the state that had gifts stuffed in their saddlebags or tied on their sissy bars or handlebars. And we all met in Redfield, South Dakota for this toy run. And that's Redfield is where the state hospital for the, uh, they used to call it for the mentally uh, insane, but they got some degree of political correctness now and they got some other name for it. Anyway, we all went to Redfield and we uh, went to the hospital and we presented the toys to the the residents of that school and a couple of uh, newspapers were there taking pictures and one TV station and it was a pretty cool deal but the event was late in the afternoon and nobody was leaving Redfield that night we were all staying there and it's kind of a redneck cowboy town and the city fathers didn't want a bunch of bikers from all over the state coming downtown causing trouble so they told us we were all welcome to stay in the city park and they bought us the first keg of beer so we stayed in the city park, and I can remember setting up my tent. That's about all I can remember. <laughs> I woke up Sunday morning, and I opened one eye, and I looked over, and I could see my tent. But I couldn't see the inside of it. I was looking at the outside of it. And I turned my head a little bit the other way and opened the other eye, and I could see my motorbike. And then I realized I'm laying in about six inches of water, and it's raining. Well, that was kind of a rough deal. I got packed up and rode back to Sioux Falls, and we, you know, stopped and had a few along the way. I got home that Sunday night and kind of licked my wounds a little bit and went to work Monday, and just wasn't feeling all that good. Tuesday, I wasn't feeling much better. And yeah, by Wednesday, I was downright sick. Thursday, I called in sick and stayed home, and Friday, I admitted myself to a hospital in Sioux Falls. This is in August of uh, 1982. I admitted myself into this hospital because I was just really, really ill. And when I got there, the doctors asked me all these questions. You know, what's your symptoms? What's been going on? And I told them that I was, you know, explosively diuretic. And no matter what I took, I couldn't keep it with me. Nothing at all, and I was losing weight fast, and I was dehydrated, and I just was didn't feel real good about it, my physical condition. Now, they didn't ask me about excess of alcohol consumption or any other substance abuses, so I didn't volunteer any information on those subjects. But they stabbed me in the hand with an IV and laid me in that hospital for three days. And I was so ashamed and so embarrassed and I didn't even call anybody and tell them I was in the hospital. I just kind of fell off the face of the earth for three days. And they let me out on Labor Day in 1982, told me to go home and start a soft diet, have some bananas, and if you feel a little bit better, have some soup and, and get yourself back to health. So I did that. And about Wednesday, maybe Thursday after Labor Day in 1982, I felt good enough to go out and have a bite to eat. And I had a roommate living in my house with me at that time. We went to this Mexican joint. And I ordered up a big old combination platter and a long neck bud. He ordered up something and a bunch of long neck buds. And by the time we were done eating, I had about oh, maybe an inch in the bottom of that bottle. And he had about a dozen dead soldiers laying all around the table. 
And when I uh, when I picked up that bottle and took that last sip out of it, I told him, I said, that's it, I'm never drinking again. He said, yeah, right, you'll be pie-faced by the weekend. But I put that bottle down, and I don't know what day it was, but it was a Wednesday or Thursday after Labor Day in 1982, and I haven't tasted alcohol since then. And I thought I had the world by the tail because I beat alcohol. And I didn't have the world by the tail at all. The world had me by the tail, and it was swinging me around the room like a cat. And I uh, had a real hard time then. I was, uh, was two and a half years between 1982 and 1985. I was losing everything, and I thought I should be winning because I wasn't drinking. But I wasn't, uh, I wasn't clean, and I wasn't going to AA. And I thought because I whipped alcohol, I didn't need to go to AA. And in, uh, in January 1985, things got real rough. I had to leave Sioux Falls. I packed up everything I had, and I moved to Chamberlain, South Dakota. And I was hiding out there because there were some guys that were looking for me. Bank kind of wanted to know where I was at because I was upside down on a couple of motorcycles and a house. And I was hiding out in Chamberlain. And when I got there, I only knew one person in that town, and he happened to be one person that didn't drink. And I asked him if I could hole up at his place for a bit until I could sort things out and figure which way I was going to go. And he said, sure, come on out. So I went out there and moved into his basement. And I brought my girlfriend with me. Well, that wasn't part of the deal when I made the arrangements with him. And uh, after a couple of days, he asked me to uh, take my girlfriend and leave, go find someplace else. So I did. I went and rented a little house in Chamberlain, and uh, cash was getting pretty thin. I didn't have much to go on back in them days, but uh, cash was getting thin. Then one day, my, my girlfriend told me that she was knocked. She was heavy with child. And, God, I was just devastated. I was so not ready for that, so not ready for it. But I kept struggling along, trying to find a way to make it work, and it just wasn't. It wasn't working, and after a couple of weeks, she said, you know, you're miserable. Nothing's going on here. This isn't going to work. I'm going back to Sioux Falls. I'm going to live with my mom. So she took her car. She went back to Sioux Falls to live with her mom, and now I'm alone in this town. And the one person that I did know out there, he wasn't having much to do with me anymore, and I'm about out of food. I've got a couple jars of peanut butters and a box of them saltine crackers in my cupboard, and that's about all I had. The uh, fuel barrel was getting low. I was behind on the utilities, and I was going out on the Missouri River to try to catch fish through the ice so that I could stay alive. Now, when most people go ice fishing, they've got gas drills, and they've got them little uh, carbon fiber jigging poles and Kevlar line and fancy titanium or tungsten jigs and electronics coming here and there. And when I was ice fishing in those days, I didn't have any of that equipment. I had a double bitted lumberman's axe and a Zepco 33. And if you know anything about a Zepco 33, it's the fishing pole your grandpa bought you when you were 10 years old. So I'd go out onto American Creek Bay with my Zepco 33 and my lumberman's axe, and I'd chop a hole so that I could try to catch fish. I wasn't real good at chopping holes with a two-bitted lumberman's axe, but the holes that I chop were always big holes. They're big enough to park a car. Because I'd like to stand back and fish. I could stand six, eight feet away and watch my bobber. But when I was out there on that river, I was so desperate and so uh, so ready to die that I would make sure the hole was big enough in case God 
decided to give me a nudge that I could fall in. I wouldn't fall through an eight-inch drilled hole, but I thought I could fall into one of these holes the size of a Buick. I'd stand out there with my back to the wind and my toes hanging over the edge of the pole, wait for the bobber to twitch, and I'd talk to God. God, why don't you just push me in the river? I won't fight. I'll go down. I'll drown. I'll go under the ice. Somebody will find me in the spring, and they can bury what's left, and everything will be good. Just give me that nudge. Well, God wouldn't give me that nudge. God gave me Kelly Strickers instead. Kelly Strickers was a big old redneck from Chamberlain that was fishing in the same bay. And I used Jim Murray's name and Kelly Strickers' name with their blessings and their permission. They want they want to be part of this story because they're very, very important people in my in my story. But Kelly would fish in that bay, and he had an ice fishing shack with a big hole in it where he'd stand and he'd stab fish with a spear through that hole. And he'd see me standing out there by this giant hole with a Zebco 33, and he'd just shake his head in disgust, and he'd open up his fish house and turn on the heater and have a cup of coffee and a sandwich, and every once in a while he'd look out the door to see if that idiot hippie was still out there with his back to the wind and his toes hanging over the edge of the hole. And one day Kelly, he shouted at me from his shack. We saw each other probably three or four times out there, and he, just, he knew I had to be wrong in the head. But he called me over to his shack. He shouted, Hippie, come on over here. And I looked around on that bay to see who he was talking to. But I was the only one there, so it must have been me. So I walked over to his shack. And he said, hey, Hippie, you got a bottle in your pocket out there? I said, no, man, I don't drink. I haven't drank for a couple, three years now. Well, you got a bag of that wacky tobacco? And I said, no, don't do that anymore either. And I hadn't I hadn't smoked for quite a while because I was too broke to buy any weed. But uh, Kelly invited me into his shack. He said, you know, hippie, I don't even know your name, but I think I like you. You don't drink and you don't smoke dope. Come on in and have some coffee and a sandwich. So I went into his shack, and I hadn't eaten up for a couple of days, and I slammed that coffee and pounded that hammer or that sandwich like a chicken on a June bug. And uh, Kelly and I kind of got to be friends. And he told me in that shack that day that he'd been uh, he'd been sober for 22 years, and that's a long time ago. That's how this guy's been still alive and he's still sober, and he's like 50 what 51, 52 years sober now. But Kelly and I befriended each other, and it was the most unusual. That was about 80 pounds ago. And Kelly was a big old redneck, and we were the most unlikely friends in the world. To see him and me together doing anything just didn't make sense. He was a great big giant redneck with hands that looked like Easter hams and fingers like a proctologist. And he uh, he and I befriended each other. We, we did a lot of fishing. We did some ice fishing, and we fished in the boat. And all the time that we were together, I was whining and crying about how the world sucked and how nothing was going my way. I quit drinking. I ain't smoking no dope anymore. Everything should be just fine. And he just quietly listened to it. Oh, by the way, Kelly had the ugliest boat in Chamberlain. It was an old 17-foot fiberglass turd, and it was just a, a boat that you wouldn't trust to go anywhere. He's out on the main channel of the Missouri River with that, and his boat had a name. It was called Cirrhosis of the River. <laughs> So I'm out there fishing with Kelly day in and day out. We're catching some fish. So I'm eating good. 
But at the same time, I'm still a whining, sniveling little baby because nothing's going my way, and I'm not willing to do anything about it. And he kept telling me, man, you ought to consider that Alcoholics Anonymous. That's not a bad thing. You might find a good place for yourself there. Nope, nope, nope. I'm not an alcoholic. I don't drink alcohol. I sure as hell don't need those AA meetings. So I didn't go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I went fishing with Kelly and whined and moaned most of the time. One day, Kelly came to my house, and he parked his truck in the street in front of the house and tooted the horn. And I stuck my head out the door, and he said, Grab your gear, hippie, we're going fishing. And I was about ready to put my brains on the wall by then. And I looked out the screen door, and I said, No, no, you're going fishing. I'm staying here. He wouldn't have any part of that. He just turned the motor off on that truck and set the parking brake, come up the street, up the sidewalk right into my house, and he grabbed me and slammed me against the wall. It shaked me and rattled me, and he's looking up at me. This guy was 6'4", and he was looking up at me. Like I said, that was several pounds ago, and he was a big man. He shook me and rattled me against the house, and he said, you know, when you tell me that you don't want to go fishing with me, you're telling me just how sick you really are. And I'm, I got that deer in the headlight look in my eyes because this guy's big and mean, and he's the last person in the world that ever talked to me at that time. He said, there's an AA meeting tonight at 8 o'clock at the Catholic Church Hall, Parish Hall. And he said, you're going to that AA meeting, and I'm going fishing. And he dropped me in a puddle on the floor. Now, I can't tell you what that puddle was, but I can tell you that I made it. <laughs> Kelly grinned at me and left the house, and I knew that it wasn't an ultimatum. There was no choice. There was no or else. He told me I was going to that AA meeting, and I knew that, by God, he meant what he said. So I cleaned myself up as much as I could in a house of frozen pipes, and... uh I went to that AA meeting that night, and I got there early because I wanted to case the joint. I wanted to find at least two ways to escape because I was sure as hell this guy narked me out and told all his AA buddies in Chamberlain that I'm sending a long-haired tattooed hippie freak in here. You guys got to straighten him up. So I figured I'd go to that AA clubhouse just a little bit early and case the joint. So I got in there, and I looked around, and I found where I could sit with my back to the wall and my eyes on both doors so I could bust out if I needed to. And I was sure that these uh, these old AA buddies of his were going to come in there and throw a blanket over me and beat me with blue books until I got this program of recovery, but it didn't work like that. <laughs> they came in one at a time, and they introduced themselves to me. And they all told me how glad they were that I was there. Kelly hadn't told them a damn thing. He didn't even let them know I was coming. So I'm meeting all these guys for the first time. They're meeting me for the first time. They were all old enough to be my daddy, and a couple of them could have been my granddaddy. And they're telling me how glad they are that I'm there. And I couldn't buy it. I wasn't believing for a minute, man. Nobody likes me. Why can these guys say they're glad I'm there? I remember that part of that first AA meeting, and I remember two of them folding tables with chairs like this sitting in front of the tables, and there was a blue book and the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions and a 24-hour-a-day book stacked neatly in front of each chair. Well, by the way, I call that 24-hour-a-day book, I call that the Hazelden Horoscope. <laughs> so these guys are uh, these guys are coming in, and they're telling me how glad that, you know, that they are that I'm there, and uh, they think that we ought to have a first-step meeting. 
Well, I've been kind of around AA in a way. There was some old guys in my my hometown that were alcoholics that didn't drink. And my mom and dad always tried to get me to go to AA or to Al-Anon just to kind of get me close to it. My mom even gave me a second edition blue book when I was still in high school. But uh, I don't remember a lot about that first meeting. I was almost three years since my last drink and quite a while since I smoked any ganja. But uh, the things that I remember about that was how friendly these men were. And for the first time in my life, I saw the 12 steps. I had that blue book for years, but I never opened it. I saw the first, for the first time in my life, I saw the 12 steps in writing. And I read the first step. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, dash, that our lives had become unmanageable. Well, I knew that I was powerless over alcohol by the time I was 15 years old. I didn't really, wasn't real happy about it, but I knew that the tail was wagging the dog before I even got a real good start drinking because I was definitely a drunk and there was no stopping it. Even after I stopped drinking, I knew that I was powerless over alcohol. What I didn't know, dash, that my life had become unmanageable. And believe it or not, I had a spiritual experience that night at that first AA meeting. I was a long ways out of the fog as far as drinking and using goes, but I was completely in the dark about this program and about that first simple step. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, dash, that our lives had become unmanageable. I remember those books being there. I remember they had coffee there. I remember having that spiritual experience after reading the first step for the first time. And I remember this old auctioneer named Dick. Dick gave me a uh, an AA coin that night, and it wasn't one of them plastic 24-hour coins, and it wasn't one of them plastic welcome-to-our-club coins. This was a regular, you know, metal sobriety coin like everybody gets on birthday night. The difference was where it's raised up in the middle. It usually has six months or XIV years or whatever. This had nothing in it. It was a blank And he gave me that coin that night at that meeting. He said, son, this is your inspiration. He said, keep this coin in your pocket. Keep it next to your money. He said, if you ever feel like drinking, reach in your pocket to get your money, you're going to feel that coin. And he said, if you absolutely positively think you're going to drink, he said, put that coin under your tongue. And when it melts, you come and get me and I'll buy you a drink and have one with you. Old Dick knew something. Well, I, I took that coin and I put it in my pocket where my money would have been if I'd have had any money. And I went back home that night. And I didn't have any electricity. Pipes were froze. There was no heat in the heat barrel. It wouldn't matter anyway. I didn't have no electricity. But I got out that, that blue book that my mother gave me so many years before that. I cranked up a Coleman lantern. And I sat down and I started reading that book. And I saw all them steps. I got into chapter 5 where it tells us how it works. And it said that we had to do a fearless and thorough moral inventory of ourselves and then admit to God to ourselves and another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Well, I worked on reading those those first five chapters of that book and step four two and a half times around the clock by the light of a Coleman lantern. And I did a four-step right away. And that's insanity. You don't do a four-step 
24 hours after your first AA meeting. But I did. And I went back to that Catholic church. We good? Went back to that Catholic church. I didn't have a phone. There was no such thing as cell phones in them days. But went back to that church with this big 13-page manifesto that I thought was a four-step. And I found a priest. I hadn't called, hadn't made an appointment or anything like that. And this this guy was he was a bit intimidated. Even I was a, a lot skinnier than I am now, but I still kind of looked like a badass. And I told him what I wanted to do. And he was a little reticent, but he allowed me into his office. And I started flipping through the pages of this uh, what pseudo fourth step or whatever it was. And it was just thirteen pages of discongobulated crap. It didn't. It was no inventory at all. It was just a list of all the foul and nasty things that I'd done in my life and what a poop I had been. And I got about halfway through the third page, and this guy wants me out of his church. It's clear, because he absolved me of all of my sins, and in the eyes of the Lord, I was whole. Go on, son, get out of here. I've been kicked out of a lot of places in my life, but up to that day, I've never been kicked out of a church. I left that church and I went back to the house and I knew that it was going to be another four and a half days before they had an AA meeting in Chamberlain because I had one meeting a week and I knew that I'd never make it four and a half days. I was going to put hair on the wall. So I packed up these old leather saddlebags that I had. I hiked six miles uphill from the river up to the interstate with the intentions of getting a thumb and a ride back to Sioux Falls. And, uh, I knew they had a lot of AA meetings in Sioux Falls. I knew a couple of bikers back there that were in the program. And I uh, I stood on the side of that road, and it was getting late, and nobody was slowing down, nobody was looking twice. I wasn't a very pretty sight, I can assure you that. But the sun was starting to head to the west, and it was dropping fast, you know, late in April. Days are still fairly short up there then. I'm standing on the side of the road, and I've realized that if I don't get a ride soon, I'm going to have to walk six miles back down that hill to a cold house with no electricity. You ever slept on a waterbed that ain't been plugged in for about two weeks? It ain't real comfortable. Anyway, the, the, the prospect of walking back down that hill and going to that cold, empty house wasn't, uh, wasn't a very good prospect to me. So I did, uh, I did what I like to do when I'm in trouble. I called the almighty scorekeeper in as a pinch hitter and I said God I got a taste of AA I need some more get me off this highway God give me a ride give me a ride to Sioux Falls I go to AA and never drink and use I go to that AA the rest of my life you get me off this road tonight and no sooner than those words left my lips a big old semi pulled over the side of the road damn you want to be careful what you pray for you might get it so I hitchhiked back to Sioux Falls, and uh, the driver knew right where I wanted to go, and he dropped me off. I called a buddy of mine. He came out and picked me up took me to a meeting. And uh, I once stayed with another buddy for uh, for a couple of weeks while I was trying to figure out, you know, what I was going to do. I left Sioux Falls to go to Chamberlain to try to figure out what I was going to do. And here it is three months later, and I'm back in Sioux Falls still trying to figure out what I was going to do. And the only thing that made me feel good was going to those AA meetings and working with other alcoholics. And I had a sponsor, and that sponsor was temporary, but he'd pick me up, take me to two or three meetings a day. And uh, I probably had 15 
maybe 16 days of recovery, two to three meetings a day, and I was really feeling good. You know, I had a chance. I didn't know what I was going to do. I still didn't know which way the wind was blowing, but I knew I had a chance. And then one evening I found myself in a situation where I didn't feel that I had the control that I deserved for a man that hadn't drank for nearly three years and hadn't smoked any weed and has gone to AA meetings for 15 days. Everything should be mine by now, right? Well, the guy that I was staying with, he didn't drink, but he, he kept some weed around. In fact, he had a bong on the coffee table and a little ashtray full of clean weed next to it. And I found myself in a situation where I didn't have the control that I thought I should have. So I picked up that bong, and I picked up a pinch hit of that schwag weed, and I took the hit. And before I exhaled, I reloaded the pipe. I exhaled. I turned right back and I hit that pipe again. And it was swag weed. It was dirty ditch weed. It wasn't enough to catch a buzz at all. But it was enough to dirty my sobriety and I knew it. I can tell you right now that everybody in this room can get up out of the chair you're sitting in and come up here and beat me with that chair till you're tired of beating me and ain't one of you in here or the whole damn lot of you in here that can hurt me worse than I can hurt me. I've been hurt plenty in my life. Been in bike wrecks, I've been in uh, bare knuckle brawls, fall off that roof. I've been busted up a lot of different ways, and ain't nobody alive that can hurt me more than I can hurt me. And I just felt like a complete turd after that, a complete turd. And uh, I knew that I'd really, really, I'd really messed up. And I knew that I was at a major turning point in my life. What are you going to do now? Well, I waited until the next day, and I went back to that, that AA clubhouse where I'd been going to the meetings, and I told the old-timers sitting around the round table, I said, fellas, I dirtied my sobriety yesterday. And one of them said, well, how was that for you? Got right up in my face and asked me that. I thought, you cold-hearted son of a bitch, you ask me that kind of a question? And I said, why would you ask me that? He said, because I I want to know from your expense and not from my own. I said, I feel like a turd. I dirtied my sobriety. He said, well, what do you want to do about it? And I said, man, I am back here because I don't want some more of what I had last night. He pointed to a desk over in the corner and there was a little tin recipe box on that desk and it was full of recipe cards. He said, go over there to that tin box and pull out a blank card. He said, you write your name down on there. You write your sponsor's name down on there. And he said, you write today's date down on there, but you probably want to use pencil for that because I'm pretty sure you're going to have to change it. (laughs) That pissed me off. (laughs) So I went over to that desk and I fished out a blank recipe card and I wrote my name in ink and I wrote my sponsor's name in ink and I wrote May 13th, 1985 in ink on that card. And I stuck that card back in that box. And I have not seen that card since then. Now, I know that card's still in there because I know that box is still there. Damn near 30 years later, that box is still around. And one of these hammerheads that I go to meetings with in Sioux Falls, he always questions everything I say. He, he just, he trusts me, but he still challenges and questions everything I say. 
And I announced one night, you know, when I was speaking, that I'd never seen that card since then. Well, that son of a bitch had to go pull that box out and look at that card for himself. But he didn't show it to me. He told me a few weeks later, he said, you know, I pulled that box out and I found your card in there. And he said, you weren't lying. It really was May 13th, 1985. I said, I hope I never have to see that card. When I die, you can throw it in the fire with me and that'll be a good way to get rid of it. But until then, I'm not interested in seeing that card ever again. So those are some of the things of what it was like and what happened. And I want to talk about what it's like today. Today it's good to be me. It's really good to be me. I've got a, a, what I feel is a good solid program of recovery that works for me. I wouldn't recommend anybody in here to do what I do the way I do it. It works for me, but that don't mean it'll work for you. And I've got a good sponsor, Big Jim. I met Big Jim when he was in treatment. I've been sober for about five years, and Big Jim was in treatment at the same time my baby brother was. And I got this ratty old Indian motorcycle with a sidecar on it. And sidecars made out of two garbage cans, if you can imagine such a thing. And uh, I got invited to go to family week when my baby brother was in treatment. One of the clients that I had in my business was the nurse at the treatment center, and she put one and one together, two guys with the same last name. She asked me if I was related to him. I said, yeah, we got the same parents. So she invited me to come and speak during family week that, that when my brother was in. And I, I remember it like yesterday. I come flying into that treatment center with my hair on fire and his bike from hell. And my brother and Big Jim were sitting at a picnic table outside. Big Jim, spoiled man. His daddy had money. Jim worked hard. He's made money. He's used to having things his way. He didn't want to be an alcoholic. He didn't want to be in treatment. And he sure as hell didn't want to be in treatment sharing a room with another man. He'd been there for about two weeks, and he was bitching the whole time he was there about having to share his room with another man. Finally, his roommate checked out of treatment. So he had a room by himself about two days before I showed up to speak. I come flying in there with my hair on fire, and I did a Brody and backed that bike right up to the curb. Jim looked at my brother, and he said, look at that crackhead. He said, I'm just sure as hell, I'm sure as hell that he's checking himself in for treatment. They're going to make him move in with me. <laughs> my brother didn't even look up. He spit on the ground, and he said, no, no, that's not a crackhead, and he's not going to be your new roommate. He said, that's my big brother. He's our speaker tonight. He's been sober for five years. So that's how I formally met Big Jim. And I had sponsors before Big Jim. I buried a few of them. I got fired by one, and uh, I went looking for a new sponsor in the west side. Now, Big Jim, he's part of the south side mafia, and I don't go to south side. I go to west side. He don't go to west side because he's one of the south side godfathers. So he stays on his side of town, and I stay on mine. But I went through the, the west side group trying to find somebody that had sponsored me, and either these old-timers, I'm kind of a wild guy, even though I seem mellow, I'm a bit wound. And these old-timers, they look at me and laugh, like, yeah, I'm right, I'm going to sponsor you. And some of them, just when I asked them if they'd sponsor me, they'd run right out of the building like a scared rabbit. So I got Big Jim to say yes. And I picked him because he's big, he's intimidating, he's got a look that'd scare Christ off the cross, but he's got a heart bigger than the great outdoors. And and Jim's a good man, and I'm very, very happy to have him as a sponsor. I sponsor men in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've sponsored a, a, a fair number of men. 
And if you don't know what a sponsor is, I'll tell you, is my, and my understanding of a sponsor is a trusted friend. And a friend is somebody who knows you pretty well and likes you in spite of it. I have a 100% success ratio sponsoring men in Alcoholics Anonymous. Every one of them sons of bitches has kept me sober. Catching on, Kenny. <laughs> I love Alcoholics Anonymous. It's given me, it's given me more things than I can even begin to tell you up here in an hour. The most important thing that it's given me is a relationship with a God of my understanding. And without that, I would be done. I'd be dead meat. I've uh, I've faced a fair amount of adversity in my my years of recovery. Uh, married twice. Let's have supper with Butch tonight. Butch, thanks for supper. That's pretty nice of you. And he asked me, are you married? And I kind of contemplated for a moment, and I said, you know, Butch, I've been married and happy. I prefer happy. <laughs> I have been married two times. I married the gal in, uh, in 1987. A couple years after I recovered, got got my sobriety date, a couple years after that. She'd been clean and sober for about, oh, maybe six or eight months before our wedding day. And she started drinking at the reception. <laughs> that didn't end well. We were, we were married for 37 months, and I just couldn't take it anymore. We had a kid together, and the kid was two years old when we got married. And I knew that somebody had to be the responsible parent in that family, and, and apparently it was going to have to be me. But it got to be really, really, uh, uh, really bad because Mama was drinking and using and running around and gambling. Was never there for that kid. And I, my line of work in those days was such that I could work out of home, and I, I chose to work out of my home so that I could be there for that kid. She's 29 years old. She never had a babysitter. She's never seen her daddy drink or use. Her mom tried to take her own life a couple of times. Uh, several years after we were divorced. And one of the guys that I sponsor and his lady friend got her committed, took her to the, to the hospital in Sioux Falls. And when they got her stabilized enough, they, uh, they shipped her off to treatment. And I went to treatment for family day every week, every, every week for four weeks while she was in treatment. And I told her, you know, I don't hate you. I love you. You're the mother of our daughter. But you're sick and you need help. And she got out of treatment and she kind of got her poop in a group, but she never did completely get out of the drinking, but she did marry one of my old drinking buddies, and they bought a house four blocks down the street from me and my daughter, and I call him my husband-in-law. <laughs> I get along very well with those, with those people, my ex-wife and her husband. They're very dear friends of mine today. A number of years went by, and I met another lady, and I uh, I asked her to marry me, and she didn't say no. She said yes. Yeah. So uh, I took took my daughter and moved away about 165 miles up the road and, and moved in with my wife up there. And, uh, oh, gosh, about a year and a half after I, I got married, I fell off a roof up there and got busted up bad. I'm lucky I can walk. I'm lucky I'm alive. And about a year and a half after I fell off that roof, she took ill and died. Yeah died a really horrible, horrible death. 
she took an antibiotic that wasn't prescribed to her. She had an allergic reaction to it. And she was breaking out in hives and vomiting and diarrhea and, and just having a really rough time. I didn't know what was going on for sure, but I knew it wasn't good. And she did not want me to take her to the hospital. She begged me to not take her to the hospital. She said, just let me lay down for a little bit. So I carried her back to our bed. Laid her down. I pulled up a chair like that next to the bed. She said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm watching you. If I don't like the way you sleep, I'm going to carry you. And then I've still got walking with a cane in those days. I said, if I don't like the way you're sleeping, I'm going to carry you down the steps and drag you to the hospital whether you want to go or not. Long story short, I took her to the hospital that evening, and we were there for an hour and 20 minutes, and they did nothing but take her temperature four times with four different thermometers. They thought something was wrong with their thermometers because her body temperature was so low. She was going into shock. These idiots at this hospital didn't know that. Now, I wouldn't have to manage my anger if everybody else would manage their stupidity. I did not get angry in that situation, but I was I was pretty crippled up still, and I'm on my knees on the floor in that emergency room. She was a tiny little thing. She was she's even shorter than you, Kelly. She was tiny, and I was sitting. She was sitting in a chair, and I'm kneeling on the floor, and I got her hands in mine, and she said, "Honey, I don't feel good." Her eyes rolled back in her head, and her tongue came out, and her jaw clenched down on her tongue, and she started trembling and shaking to beat hell. And I got up and I shouted down the hall and I said, we need some help down here now. And I helped load her up on a gurney and they took her to the other end of the hospital and they made a little makeshift uh, intensive care room for lack of a better term. It's a small town hospital. And they uh, they got her in that, that little ICU room and they pushed me out in the hallway. And they brought me a big stuffed chair so that I could rest myself. They knew I couldn't stand for a long time. I shouldn't even be standing here this long. But they brought me that chair, and I didn't sit in it. I used that chair to lower myself to my knees. And I prayed. I didn't pray for a miracle that she'd get better, because I was pretty sure it was it was lights out. I prayed that God would bless me with knowledge of his will for me and the strength that comes only through his perfect loving grace so that I could do my part in whatever his will was for me. Well, about a half an hour later, they came out and they told me that they they finally got a weak heartbeat out of her, and they were working on getting her innovated at that time. And I don't know if you know much about the human body, but it don't do real well without oxygen for a half an hour. And she, uh, she suffered massive brain damage and never regained consciousness. They called an ambulance down from Fargo to take her back up to Fargo, and I rode in the ambulance with. And I stayed up all night that night and all day the next day, and family members are starting to follow behind now. They're making calls and getting people alerted to what's going on. And I was in Fargo with her for six days. She never regained consciousness. There were a couple of days where her eyes would open, and she had beautiful green eyes. She was a hottie. Her eyes would open, and they would race around the room, and they would stop for a moment. But they didn't look at you, they'd look through you. And then they'd race around the room again, and they'd stare blankly into space. But she never regained consciousness. And the last couple of times I saw her eyes, they were still beautiful, but there was no life behind them. There was no brain behind them. There was no processing of what those eyes were doing. And then there was a few days where she just didn't open them at all. And finally on... uh, 
on December 12th, it was time to take her off life support. And I knew it. I was comfortable with it. And my mom and my dad really wanted to be there for me while she was in, you know, in her last days and I was in my deepest time of need. But my brother from Minneapolis came down for a couple of days first. And one of my other brothers from the Sioux City area came up and spent a couple of days with me. And on the sixth day, my mother and my father drove up to be with me. And that was the day that we took her off life support. And I remember this like yesterday, too. My dad said, my godson, how can you stay so calm? How can you stay so cool? He said, look at you. He said, you got your head up, your eyes forward. You're cognizant. You know exactly what's going on. But you're maintaining. And I said, Dad, it's only because I'm clean and sober. It's only because I know This is not between me and God. This is not my business with God. This is between her and God. God's taking her home. I got to stick around. And the old man was pretty blown away about that. We took her off life support about 6.30 that evening. And my daughter, who's not biologically connected to this woman at all, sitting on one side of the bed. I'm sitting on the other side of the bed. I'm holding her left hand in mine, and my daughter's holding her right hand in hers. And we sat there, oh, probably almost eight hours after they took her off of life support. And we're slowly watching the the numbers on the monitors go down and down and down and down. And about eight minutes before 2 o'clock in the morning on December 13th, she opened her eyes. She couldn't move at all, but she opened her eyes and she looked to her right. She looked right at my daughter. And she looked to her left. And she looked right at me. I knew this lady well. She wasn't looking through me or past me or into space. She looked at me. And then her eyes went straight to the ceiling. And when when she did, it was over. That sound that you see on TV when somebody codes, it's over. That's a real sound. Been there, seen that. So after 37 months of wedded bliss, I lost the love of my life. That's been 11 years, and I've had a hard time with it, but I've never, ever lost my faith. She was not in this program. She didn't need to be in this program. She was one of those earth people. But by the time I had met her, I had already disciplined myself to pray and meditate every day. And I learned how to pray and meditate, not what words to use, but how to do it. Butch, I mentioned this to you today, too. It doesn't matter how you pray as much as it matters that you pray. I used to do Sunday night meetings in Westside, the non-smoking room with this old gal named Veda. And Veda's passed on now, too. And I never say about this, never say this about anybody when they're alive, but I will say it about them after they're gone. Veda had a black belt in AA. And she wasn't afraid to use it. I'm buzzing. It must be 9 o'clock. How much time I got, Kenny? Oh, hell, 25 minutes. Everybody fire up a cigarette and order a beverage. We're going to go. <laughs> Veda had a black belt in AA. She sponsored a lot of ladies in Alcoholics Anonymous. She did not sponsor me, but I went to a lot of meetings with Veda because neither one of us liked to be in a smoky room. And Veda had all of her sponsees hide their shoes under their bed. When they go to bed at night, take whatever shoes you're wearing tomorrow and you stuff them under your bed tonight. 
when you get ready to go to bed, you're down there shoving them shoes under there. You're going to be down on your knees. That's a pretty good time to talk to God. And in the morning when you wake up, you're going to have to find them shoes. You're going to have to get on your knees again. And when you're down there, that's a pretty good time to talk to God. Well, I never put my shoes under my bed. But I did learn how to pray in the time it takes me to make my bed. And when my beloved was still alive, we'd make our bed together in the morning. We'd make our bed together and we would say a prayer together. Even though she wasn't an alcoholic, she got it. She understood how important it was to me to have that daily contact with God. So we'd make our bed together. And uh, after she passed away, I cleared out of there and moved back to Sioux Falls. I never stopped making that bed. And I never stopped taking time to pray every single day, even today. I don't know what the hell we on the second floor here. My directions are turned around, but I'm going to say I live over here this way. Even today when I got up in that, that motel room, I made my bed and I said my prayer. And when I pray to God, I talk out loud to him just like I'm talking out loud to y'all. I don't ask God to give me a, a new pony or an old motorcycle. I ask God to please Bless me with knowledge of your will for me for today. And bless me with enough strength that comes only through your perfect loving grace so that I can best do my part in whatever your will for me today would be. And I say that prayer out loud. And after I've asked God to bless me with those two things, then I pray for my 87-year-old daddy. Bless my dad. Bless his brother. Bless his sister. Bless their spouses and all their children and their grandchildren. And then I ask God to bless us, us alcoholics that are in recovery today. God, help us all. Every one of us today needs your guidance. And then I ask God to bless them, those alcoholics that are still out there suffering. They don't even know what we know. We have that basic kit of spiritual tools that has been laid at our feet freely. There's millions and millions of people out there that don't have a clue. But I pray for those people, too. And I pray for people, everyone alive today that has a soul, gets a prayer from me today. I even pray for the Democrats if they have a soul. <laughs> I think I just broke an egg. <laughs> Remember what I said when I started. I'm not afraid to break eggs to make an omelet. If you've got a problem with anything I say up here tonight, take it up with your sponsor. <laughs> you'll either get over it or you'll die mad. I've made a major change in my life in the last year, moving away from Sioux Falls and back to my tiny little hometown. In Sioux Falls, there were roughly 140 AA meetings every week. Seven days, there was roughly... 20 meetings a day, 140 meetings a week you could hit in Sioux Falls. I lived a half a mile from my home club, and that's where I cut my teeth. That's where I filled that card out and stuck in that card file so long ago. I could walk, even in my decrepit physical condition, I could walk to AA meetings, and I chaired a ton of meetings. I have chaired thousands of AA meetings. And I miss the convenience of being able to go to a meeting whenever I want. I moved away. Now I'm a different fish in a whole different lake. And I'm going to meetings in Sioux City a little bit, trying to find a niche there. But I don't like Sioux City all that much. Anybody ever been to Sioux City? 
they were going to give Iowa an enema, probably be Sioux City. <laughs> Somehow I got reason to believe that's going to come back and haunt me. Anyway, you can erase that, can you? <laughs> Damn. Don't sell anything to anybody in zip code 51101. <laughs> But I did find AA meetings in a little town nine miles up the road called Elk Point. Elk Point's the county seat in Union County. And they have a Sunday morning meeting at 9, which I've yet to attend. But they got a Monday night and a Thursday night at 8. And I've been going to those things religiously since I landed there because it's kind of the only game in town that I feel comfortable at. When I first got there, I thought to myself, my God... These people are never going to stay sober. i got to fix this. <laughs> In true alcoholic fashion. And then I thought quietly to myself about what I had just thought, and I laughed. Well, you, you dummy, you know better than that. You can't change anybody. All you can change, all any of us can change, is our attitudes and our actions. We can't change a damn thing else. You change your zip code. You can change your phone number, but it comes right down to it. You can even change your appearance, but the two things you can really only change are your attitudes and your actions. So I have found a home in Elk Point. I love it. I very rarely miss a meeting. And if I'm going to miss a meeting, like I knew I wasn't going to be there Thursday night. I'm not going to be here Thursday night. I'm going to be in Valentine with my son. I'm going to an AA meeting with him. And I did. The kid's been sober six and a half years, and I couldn't be more proud of him. He's got the disease. He's not related to me by blood, by blood but my deceased wife's oldest son. He's got the same disease that we have, and he is working hard on a cure, and he's doing well with it. He knows that he has a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance of his spiritual condition. The Blue Book is just full of gold. It's full of gold. These meetings are full of gold. I wanted to talk about change in physical appearance. As you can see, I've conquered anorexia. It wasn't always that way. I was a 185-pound, lean, mean, fighting machine when I fell off a roof about 13 years ago. Uh, gravity took its toll on me. That's about, my God, that's 40 pounds ago, at least. But when I got busted up, my days of moving and being active and being able to do what I used to be able to do ended like that. And that little green-eyed girl put a lot of weight on me that first six months that I was laid up. I went from 185 to 235 between March 11th and Thanksgiving. I stood on a scale, and I said, this just can't be right. And I worked hard, and I dropped, I think I dropped 15 pounds between Thanksgiving and Christmas that year. And I've tried to keep it at a manageable level, and making the move 75 miles, it took me like three months to move all of my junk. I'm a stage three hoarder. <laughs> And at stage, at stage four, they bring in professionals and television crews. <laughs> I don't know my junk. My junk owns me. But I lost a lot of weight, you know, making this move. And uh, the last few months, I've slowed down a lot. And it's the first holiday season in my hometown where I've been able to just lay back and let it come. And I did. And I think I put on 15 or 20 pounds between the 1st of November and the end of January. But when I get home, I promise I'm going to start working on it again. When I came to AA, I had long hair, I had a beard, and I had a tattoo, and I had a motorcycle. And uh, I needed to get a job. When I finally did 
start to come to find some direction. I knew that I needed to get a job. So I cut my hair and I shaved my beard. I kept the tattoo and I sold the motorcycle. And I went to a lot of AA meetings that first year. I don't know how many I went to, but it was hundreds and hundreds of AA meetings that first year. And I had short hair, a little porn star, mustache kind of thing. And I was kind of cute. I had skinny hips and wide shoulders. And I, that's what middle, what's that, what I sang about middle age or midlife is when broad minds and narrow waistlines go. <laughs> well, midlife happened. Anyway, that first year that I was in recovery, had short hair, no whiskers, no motorbike. And I watched, and I listened, and I learned. And I watched, and I listened, and I learned some more. And I saw a lot of long-haired dirtbags come into AA, and they'd look around. They couldn't see anything there they could relate to. I'd see biker chicks come into AA, and there ain't no biker chicks here. This place is just a bunch of squeaky, clean, smiley, happy, goody two-shoes. And they'd leave, and you'd never see them again. Where did those people go? What happened to those people? Honest to God, the God of my understanding told me after I was a year clean and sober that it was okay for me to have a motorcycle. It was okay for me to let my hair grow, to let my whiskers grow. And I've done that. I chose to look this way, and I paid a hell of a price for it. I know damn well when I cross that Nebraska border tomorrow, sure as there is a God, Smokey the Bear is going to take one look at me and say, boy, I want to know what's going on with you. What are you doing coming out of Colorado? What do you got? What do you got in that pickup truck, boy? I come to find out in Colorado that things are a little different than they are in South Dakota. I'm not a heavy smoker, but I enjoy smoking a cigar when I'm on the road. And I ran out of cigars someplace between Valentine and North Platte and didn't have any more cigars. That really didn't stop until I got to Greeley. I get to Greeley and I'm coming up this 8th Avenue or whatever it is, and I'm thinking, damn, I should get some cigars. So I got some for the rest of the weekend and for the trip home. I see a big old place that says smoke shop. Oh, God. <laughs> so I pulled over. I'm trying to find a place to park my vehicle. You couldn't get anywhere near this smoke shop. <laughs> and then I look at the painting, the painted letters in the window said hookahs. And you look through the glass and there's big beakers full of buds and there's glass pipes and there's bongs and water pipes and rolling papers. Your smoke shops here are quite a bit different than the smoke shops we got in South Dakota. I kid you not, I don't know the name of that first one, but I come up the road a little further and I see another smoke shop. Great, I got another chance. And I took a second look at it, Highlander Smoke Shop. And it's painted up in Rastafarian green, yellow, and red paint. I'm a good guy. Oh, I am in Colorado. Let me tell you something about this, Colorado. Just because it's legal don't mean it's right. If you haven't figured it out, I'm kind of a card-carrying conservative. God, guts, and guns made this country free at all costs. I intend to keep all free. I know that I've been given so much, freely given, so many gifts from this program, 
that I couldn't possibly live long enough to pay back what AA has given me. That deal I made with God out there on the highway back in 1985, and I get me off this road, God, I'll give you the rest of my life. I have every intention of making good on my word on that. Every intention. And I know I lost that little green-eyed girl, and I know it's been rough, and I know I might never ever be comfortable in the arms of another lady, and I'm okay with that. It's taken a long time, but I'm okay with that. And I also know that one day God will send his angels down. He'll take me home. I don't know how that works after you're gone, but I do believe that you get reunited with the ones you love. And I know the way my luck runs, I'll probably live to be a hunter. We've got to be close to the bottom of that barrel on time now, I'm guessing. Again, i got to thank everybody. Thank God for everything. I thank God for everything every day, even the things that I don't understand, the things that I don't like. I still thank God for that every night when I go to bed. Thank you for the day, God. And because I asked for it in the morning, God, show me what you got up your sleeve for me today. I can swallow any pill that comes down the pike at me every single day because I asked for it. God, show me what you got up your sleeve for me today and give me enough strength to to, to do my part in whatever that is. Everything that happens is part of God's bigger plan, and I can accept that. And I don't like some things that happen for a moment. And then I remember, wait a minute, cowboy, you asked for this. This is what God's bringing you because you asked God to bring it to you today. And I thank him for it at night. I'm going to go back over there. got to go down and around and up to get over there. But I'm going back over there tonight and pull the sheets back on that bed I made this morning. And when I do, I'll thank God. And I'll thank God for everything that I've gotten today. And i got to tell you all, thank you for being such a great group. I didn't cry much today. I'm kind of proud of myself for that. And I think if my mom were in the room tonight, she was perfectly holy. A woman and another lady started Overeaters Anonymous in Sioux City, Iowa back in the 70s. And there was no Overeaters Anonymous in Sioux City. So these ladies went to Alcoholics Anonymous and they identified themselves and introduced themselves as alcoholics. Neither one of them had a drinking problem. They were both big girls. But they gave themselves to Alcoholics Anonymous, and they learned the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they learned how the 12 traditions work. And then they got some OA books, and they started Overeaters in Sioux City a long, long time ago. My mom's been gone eight or nine years now. So she had plenty of time to watch me find recovery and grow in recovery. And I quit drinking two and a half years before I got here. And in 1984, one of my brothers got killed in a car wreck. And I went back home for his funeral. And my mother wanted to make an amend to me. She wanted to do her ninth step with me as part of her program of recovery. And I was pretty cocky then because I hadn't drank for damn near two years. I wasn't an alcoholic because I was smarter than that. She came to me at my brother's funeral. She said, Mark, you know, I'm in a 12-step program, and I just want to tell you that I'm sorry for everything that I've done that wasn't right for you. And I knew enough about this thing to know that you're supposed to be a little more specific than that. 
And I said, really, Mom, you think you're just going to put an umbrella over the whole thing and keep it dry? Aren't you going to get specific? And she gave me a look like I punched her in the gut. And I knew, I knew long before Chamberlain, long before Kelly Strickers, I knew that day that I was screwed. I knew that I had to find my way to this program. I knew that I had to. And I can never be grateful enough for what's so freely been given to me. I'll give this away the rest of my life. I will continue to do what has worked for me until I can't do it anymore. It's been my pleasure to be here tonight. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.